Hello everybody, welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today I have an episode in which I have learned so much, so I am excited and I know it's going to be one that's very useful and popular to all of you. I have invited Professor Dennis Smith from Illinois Fire Service Institute and Skidmore College and Professor Gavin Horn from UL Fire Safety Research Institute, a previous guest on the podcast. And I wanted to talk with them about thermal stresses and how humans deal with uh, thermal exposures. I thought it's going to be an easy and nice episode. Really, really, I feel kind of stupid after the episode. But yeah, I, I thought it's going to be simple. I'm going to ask them like, what heat exposures are safe, what are not safe, well, how long can firefighters work in a scene of fire, to what extent we should design buildings having that in mind. You know, the typical engineer questions that come to my mind in a way that I was trained through all my life and uh, the way how I practiced my engineering. These are the things that I thought that are important. And then in the episode, I learned that it's not the most important thing. I mean, it's important, but it's just one part of the giant equation of thermal equilibrium of a firefighter, human physiology, and what uh, a hero can take. It's astounding the level of complexity related to how long firefighters can perform tasks they need to perform and how different tasks put different strain on their bodies. And when we start talking about temperatures, it seems that the internal temperatures are as important or maybe at some point even more important than external temperatures. So we put them into their protective uh, gear and uh, they heat up. As simple as that, the equipment separates them from environment, does not let heat in, but also does not let heat and humidity out. So we are creating them personal saunas in which they run marathons with their gear on their back. Wow, that is amazing. I highly respect firefighters, but I mean, after this episode, uh, uh, this grown exponentially up the, the physical strain you guys and girls are going through to save lives is amazing. Anyway... My journey through this episode, like going with a state of mind of an engineer and, and ending in the discussion with a completely different view on the subject, it's really eye-opening. And as we design buildings, very complex buildings, very large buildings, tall buildings, deep underground car parks, places with low accessibility, where we consider all the tools that firefighters need from us to release some of the strain on them, you know, the uh, hydrants, standpipes, the elevators, all the access routes. When you start thinking about the physiological exposure of a human body, of the body of a firefighter, what they have to go through, you really start to appreciate why we are designing these tools. So, yeah, it, it has been a journey for myself and it's a tough episode. But I think it's a much needed one. I have never learned that in my life of a fire engineer, and I feel I should have. So, yeah, please accompany me the journey of my stupid self learning these important things from legends of this field. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host.
Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fire Science Show. I'm here today with uh, two great guests. First, uh, Professor Dennis Smith from Skidmore College and Illinois Fire Service Institute. Denise, uh, really happy to have you in the podcast. Thanks so much for the invitation to be with you. I'm very happy to have you here. And my second guest, Dr. Gavin Horn from UL Fire Safety Research Institute. Hey, Gavin, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? It's great to be back again and uh, look forward to another great conversation with you, sir. Yeah, I certainly appreciate it. You've promised uh, we're going to go back to thermal stresses and here we are. You've delivered. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy. And you wrote this the news with you. That's that's even better, even better. <laughs> Most important thing I could do. Thank you. <laughs> okay, you can switch off now. <laughs> it's good to have friends. <laughs> good to have friends. Um, so, guys, I was uh, searching for a scientist, someone who can discuss thermal stresses in fire situations with me. From my background, I am a fire engineer. And as fire engineer, I design buildings. I design safety systems in the buildings. Uh, I simulate fires in the buildings. From my experience, I usually deal with smoke and visibility in smoke. And that's something that we've discussed a lot in, the, in this podcast. But number two thing that is usually considered in our analysis, and especially when we go into safety of firefighting operations analysis, uh, thermal stresses or thermal effects of fires, exposure to heat, exposure to temperature, if I may say that, in front of professors, sorry. <laughs> So, so heat transfer to, to humans involved in fires, which are mainly firefighters, is something definitely very interesting for any fire engineer and definitely interesting for any practitioner firefighter who, who literally feel the heat on their skin. And as we've discussed before the show, a really nice place which connects the world of fire, the world of humans and the modern technology is the evolution of personal protection equipment, PPE, which is critical in preventing the damage from fires to humans. So I know you've been involved in evolution of, this, uh, of these devices in, in, in saving firefighters' lives. Maybe you could briefly introduce me to how we have started as professionals recognize the effects of heat on firefighters or on humans in general and how we've started to, to battle these effects and how far did we get in that? Well, um, that was a large question to begin. Uh, maybe I'd start just with a, a personal yeah. journey of okay, how that's I even began. Yeah. I began to see it in the fire service when I was invited as a researcher to help fire instructors understand why they were seeing an increase in heat stress or heat illness. Mm -hmm. among their recruits when they transitioned to new PPE or the, the fully encapsulating bunker gear. Now, this was many years ago, and it was an evolution of trying to better protect firefighters against the radiant heat load or the heat, heat mm -hmm. of the fire. And I think now it's well accepted across the globe that we want firefighters to be protected from the heat, the external heat source, so that they can operate safely on the interior of a structure. Mm. And increasingly, that evolution continues with more and better encapsulation to protect against heat and also mm. to protect against chemical exposures. Mm -hmm. 
But what I learned quickly is something that I think the fire service knows intuitively. Mm -hmm. And that is the more you encapsulate, the Mm -hmm. more you protect the firefighters from the thermal threat of a fire, the more you increase the heat stress that the firefighter has to deal with, the physiological burden. Because we all know this in our own lives. If you were to go out and exercise, you would not want to do it wearing firefighting PPE. That retains the heat and the humidity next to the skin. And as a result, two things are happening simultaneously. Mm. When you're working in PPE, it does effectively slow the transfer of heat towards the human body, but it also traps the heat that the human body produces inside the PPE. And so what we really see are competing demands. Mm. Of course, it's a very good thing that our PPE is providing more protection against burn injury. But we also have to recognize that that increases the physiological burden of the firefighter working inside the gear. And that's uh, that's a heavy hitter, you know, because as a fire engineer, I would never in my career consider physiological heat production or what's happening inside the, the gear as an impactful element of the puzzle. I would only consider how much I can burn the firefighter. I would not think about to what extent the, the gear itself limits them. However, when I wear warm clothes in winter and I don't go out for too long, I understand I get sweaty very quickly. It's very uncomfortable. It's like, as you said, it's it's very intuitive that you reduce your capability to actually do the work in heavier protection gear. So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's a very powerful thing. I think even that is very close to what we've discussed the last time in terms of how long can uh, the uh, people on the site work on the site and how to balance this. You've also mentioned other sources of injury like tripping and nails and and other stuff that are there that you have to protect against. But essentially, you cannot just go into steel uh, armor into a fire scene because you're not going to be able to do any work. So, so I guess this uh, also connects to, to your work you've been doing at UL, right? Yeah, you're right. In, in many different ways. And, and some of the work that I've been very fortunate to, to conduct with Denise at, at the Illinois Fire Service Institute. You know, at, at this point, mm-hmm. we don't have an Iron Man suit, right? I mean, you don't have the ability mm-hmm. to do all those things, be protected from everything, and importantly, mm-hmm. still do the work that has to be done. I mean, that's, we ask a lot of our personal protective equipment, all those things that you just mentioned, right? I mean, we've got to, we've got to be able to protect from burn injuries. We've got to be able to protect from something falling on us, something hitting us, possibility of low air, low oxygen in in the environment that we're breathing. Mm -hmm. So they got, you got to be concerned about scrapes and bruises and, you know, all the, the injuries that can happen from contact. And then now, as Denise mentioned, we're adding concerns about protection from from smoke. Now, I should say elevating those concerns to, to try to become a little bit more protective from each of those. So you know, the modern personal protective ensemble that firefighters wear is incredibly engineered to allow us mm-hmm. to do all of those things, yet you still have dynamic work that has to be done. You, you have to be able to move your head around, which is why we typically mm-hmm. have a little bit less protection 
around the head and the neck area in order to, to have range of motion to, to see and to do the work that you're doing. But we also know that's where there's some areas where there, there may be an increased risk for burns as well as an increased risk for, for some smoke exposure. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to, to crawl. We have to be able to advance a hose line to do all of those things that have to be done. But it's also never, well, it's rarely the same thing every time. We wear mm-hmm. the same gear, whether we're working inside the structure, advancing on the interior to put water directly on the fire, or while we're working on the outside, possibly throwing ladders against the structure, cutting holes in the roof, doing overhaul on the structure, or going to a car fire on the exterior where you have a lot of radiant heat, but you might be out there working on that fire for, for long periods of time. And so that's an area where some of the work that, that Denise and I were very fortunate to conduct at, at Illinois was able to look at the impacts of wearing the modern firefighting ensemble in different activities that firefighters would do. So some of the things I just mm-hmm. mentioned, going on the inside of a structure, we, we looked at interior operations. So taking a hose line, putting water on the fire, search and rescue on the interior of the structure. We had another group of firefighters, and this was in the study we're talking about right now, in a simulated home. So uh, about a 1,200 square foot home. I should be able to convert that in my head, but it's about, I think, 120 uh, (laughs) square meters. So a typical, relatively small residential structure doing uh, a typical response that firefighters would do. So firefighters working on the inside, those who are working on the outside, doing some of that that work of ventilation, cutting the roof, Mm. opening the windows, and another group of firefighters just doing the overhaul in terms of their Mm. activities. And we went into there hypothesizing that we'd have the highest increase in core temperature. So the temperature and the the inside of the the, the body of the firefighter, one that we're really concerned about when we quantify heat stress. And Denise can provide a lot more Mm -hmm. detail on on that. But we were expecting the core temperature to be the highest on those who are working on the interior. interior, Because of the environment. They were at the fire they, yeah, they were close. They were intimate with the fire. They were working inside that the smoke. You know, that hot upper gas layer had mm-hmm. descended. They were had the radiant heat from the fires. Every single visual indication of an increased external source of heat. And it was. We measured that. They had by far the highest temperatures that they were working in throughout their shift of work, as well as peak numbers. Yet, we ended up finding firefighters who were doing other jobs, like venting the roof. Even though they never set foot inside the structure, it was a relatively cool morning. They were having increases in core temperature that were similar or slightly higher. Same thing with the firefighters doing overhaul. The fire was suppressed. The fire was out. The windows were out of the structure. But their work, it was heavy physical work. And not only was it a lot of work, it was a long period of time. The firefighters were actually able to get water on the fire relatively quickly and while they were working hard in that environment, they were able to put the fire out. Yet some of these other activities on the fire ground, we saw that were at lower temperatures from the environment. The work that they were doing on the inside, and in some cases for longer times, increased their core temperature to a higher level. So just as Denise was saying, it's the environment and it's the individual. The work that they're doing, the metabolic heat generation that they have, and if we don't consider the two of those, you could have a firefighter who could be working in routine or low temperatures for a long period of time, 
but all that heat on the inside can't get out because the gear does its job. The gear separates you from the environment. So it doesn't let the environment in, but also doesn't let what you're generating out. And that was one thing that was a real eye-opener to us in terms of, of the magnitude of those changes in core temperature and heat stress that was was being generated. I feel ridiculous now because that what you just said, probably every every firefighter who was on the scene intuitively knows that you get as hot as physically uh, devastated after a work. No matter if you touch the fire or not, and I'm I'm here, layman who never been in a suit, never attended the fire. For me, it's a, it's a different w world, but uh, it's eye opening. And I always respected fire uh, fighters. You guys are Iron Mans, and and you girls are are, are Iron Women. It's it's amazing where you can push the human physiology, and I admire that every every day working in this career even more. Uh, Denise, maybe you can tell me. What's happening inside the suit? Like, how big is that exposure, that physiological exposure that firefighter can impose on themselves from working in PPE? Obviously, that will depend on the level of PPE. Maybe you have some nice uh, examples that would be relatable for the audience. Yes, I'd like to, to try to answer that. First, Wojtek, I'd like to um, thank you for recognizing how important perspective is that we bring to this. I totally appreciate that fire protection engineers are trying to keep firefighters safer in an operational sense. And that's an incredibly important perspective for all of us. I'd also like to recognize that manufacturers of PPE have tried very hard to protect against thermal burns and other dangers and have increasingly recognized that heat stress for the firefighter is a problem. They're trying to increase the breathability of PPE mm. to address that. And of course, the researchers have a role to play in terms of bringing another perspective to look at, so how is the firefighter responding? Not just how is the gear responding, but mm. those two related questions, because the gear properties the extent to which it can slow heat transfer to the firefighter. And then the firefighter's physiology depends upon the work that is done. Mm. And of course, it may vary by assignment. So when you ask me, so what's, what's happening to the firefighter? Mm. Yeah. I, I can provide some answer to that. But I also want to tell you it is not as intuitive to the fire service as you might believe. The uh -huh. fire service also believes that it's the heat from the fire that is of primary concern. It's so ingrained in our thinking over decades and decades. I mean, it's obvious. I'm sorry, but it's less the burning thing that's really hot and it's burning. So it, it, it looks like the number one threat there in the scene. Agreed. Agreed. And when you're fighting that fire, as you begin to feel the transfer of heat through your PPE and every firefighter has been there. They know that feeling, and it is an additional burden. It's just not the only burden, and sometimes it's so obvious that it can draw our attention away from the things that are causing heat buildup mm. all of the time. Mm -hmm. And so I will start with <laughs> trying to answer your question. So what, what is happening to the human body? Mm -hmm. And I would argue 
that firefighting is the greatest physiological stress that humans encounter on a near regular basis because you're doing extreme physical work, like an athlete, right? You, you've got, mm -hmm. um, you must have high aerobic output. You're doing muscular work over time, so you've got muscular endurance. Some of it is very forceful and quick. So you've got very high physical demands. The PPE mm -hmm. that we've been discussing is in fact itself weighs about 20 kgs, mm -hmm. 22 kgs on average by the time you wear the bunker clothing, helmets, boots, and the SCBA. It is a lot to carry this weight and do physical work. And often in very awkward positions, you're climbing stairs or a ladder, then you're crawling, you're pulling things, you're often in awkward positions, you have to put things above your head uh, or move things. Mm. So it's very stressful from a physiological standpoint. And you cannot dissipate any of the heat. It yep. is all retained next to your body. And also it's 100% humid within this gear because you don't allow vapor to mm. exit. The PPE. So you're basically always in a hundred percent humidity setting, and correct. Yeah, any anyone who's been on a vacations in a southern U.S. <laughs> like I've I've been to Texas. It's fun. Yes, yes, but this is a, it's a very good analogy. We all know that working in humidity makes the physiology harder, and so we see yeah. firefighters who have rising temperatures, increasing dehydration. We have heart rate at maximum very often during firefighting. The amount of blood that the heart can pump with each beat is actually decreased because the heart's beating so fast and there's dehydration. So there's mm -hmm. tremendous stress on the cardiovascular system. So for these mm -hmm. reasons, I say that firefighting is one of the most physiologically stressful things that humans routinely do. Now, if you would give me just one more minute to answer a follow-up question about understanding what part of the stress of firefighting is due to the external heat load and what mm -hmm. portion is due to the metabolic work of firefighters, yeah. I would add to the excellent description Gavin gave us of a very controlled study we did at Illinois, where we had firefighters deployed to a residential structure, and they served in different positions of a coordinated fire attack. And we could see what type of work over um, mm -hmm. a few minutes was causing the greatest elevation in heart rate or core temperature. And it did surprise mm -hmm. us some to find it wasn't the person closest to the fire who had the greatest rise in core temperature. In other words, they were only in front of the fire for a short time. They advanced the hose line, opened the nozzle and suppressed the fire. And the PPE effectively protected them. Mm -hmm. There's another study that I participated with our friends in Texas on, and this was in a training environment. The recruits wore a monitor for me when they were doing live fire training, and when they were doing simulated search activities. Sometimes we call these smoke 
diving drills. Sometimes we call them maze drills. But the idea is for a firefighter in a thermoneutral environment with no fire present, they crawl through a maze to make sure that they can wear their SCBA in small spaces, mm. navigate a narrow opening, and remain oriented despite the lack of visibility. And what we found, much to the surprise of the fire instructors, as well as the researchers, is that the core temperature responses were the same during those two different drills. So mm. the metabolic work, the work of the muscles, without being able to dissipate the heat, because the firefighter's wearing PPE, is really an enormous concern and underappreciated by the fire service as well. We need to be making sure that our fire instructors understand the need for work rest cycles, even if the trainees are not engaged in live fire. I prepare for these interviews, you know, and for this one, I've also did my due diligence in terms of how we engineers treat this. And I wanted to ask you guys questions. Okay, so how long can a firefighter work under like five kilowatts per square meter? How long can they work at 10 or, or three? But I, I know, see, the question is kind of stupid or ill-posed because I should rather work like what's the the threshold for a certain PPE levels? Like what's the that? Technologically maximum, a firefighter can endure in full PPE before they need to cool down, essentially. So, so do you know the number is, I don't know, 30 minutes, one hour? What would be like the point where further work is really dangerous, immediately dangerous to them? Well, I will start by punting this to Denise. Uh, <laughs> yes, Great question. And like everything else, it depends. It depends a whole lot on, it does depend on the environment, right? There is some interplay between what are the conditions outside of the gear as well. So all this, all this conversation is not to say that's not important, but it's uh -huh. to say that both of them are, are necessary. Mm -hmm. The work that's being done, Denise did a great job describing the, the description, right? I mean, you can think about the mm -hmm. act of firefighting as, you know, go into a sauna Put on your snowsuit, run a you know a 5k on a treadmill, then stop, do a max bench press, and then go back and run another 5k, and you know all of these sorts of things while you're wearing a you know a really heavy yeah. backpack. And in the meantime, solve a Sudoku and talk to your wife. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And you watch what's going on and read and react and yeah and communicate and all of all of those things that have both physical as well as psychological stressors, something we haven't really talked about a whole lot just yet. Yeah. So those different things are going to impact how long you're doing those things. I mean, there, there's times where you might be able to do a lot of work if you're if you don't have a, a self-contained reading apparatus that oftentimes limits the amount of time you can be working. Mm -hmm. And if you're working on the outside or doing some wildland firefighting or some other activities you could be continuing to work and to move for a long period of time. Now, is that walking? Is that hiking? Is that doing some heavy work, say chopping on a roof? All of those things make a very big difference. But also what makes a really big difference is the person inside the gear. How fit mm. are they? How prepared are they for the job? How hydrated are they when they start their shift? How well do they maintain their hydration? Can they rest? You know, do you have enough personnel on scene so that you have a group 
Say you need to, to go to a high rise and you have to take supplies up there. By the time you could be climbing 10, 20 flights of stairs, that's a pretty hefty physiological burden if you're doing that in, in the gear, then going to fight fire. So can, is there enough people that can help to share that load? And then what is that load? Is what stresses are being put on to the body? So my answer as an engineer, which will be corrected by Denise, is it depends. It's hard to predict those sorts of things. We're trying to understand more and more about that, but it is very dependent on the environment, the individual, and the equipment the firefighters are wearing. And then I'll let the expert actually answer it. I'm I'm going to challenge the the experts, but you cannot give answer depends to line firefighter. You don't know what level of education they they have. You you cannot expect them to read journal papers. You cannot expect them to search through Lancet for answers on physiological stress. They would like to know, okay, I'm pretty safe for 30 minutes and maybe unsafe for 45, whatever the numbers are. We need, we still need some simple numbers outside of this complexity you've just mentioned, which is astonishing how much factors can influence this possibility. And I think for every firefighter, like the things you've mentioned is something they feel. They, they, they may have intuitive knowledge on them. It's just to put them in some order numbers and that, that will serve, serve them more. But for naive engineers who never have been in the gear, it's uh, I have no intuitive feeling of what you said uh, outside of the fact that if I climb 20 floors, even without gear, I would probably die. That's, that's my assumption. I'm sorry. If you say firefighters on, are on top of physiological capabilities of, of human, I feel I'm closing the other uh, part of the of the scale. So D- Denise, uh, maybe you have a general answer for naive engineers, like how much can a firefighter endure even when the fire is not taken into account? And, and to what extent being in the scene, being exposed, shortens that available time, especially as the exposure is increased? Let me say that I think you're asking very smart questions, but I think what we're seeing and what Gavin took us to immediately is the questions quickly become very complex because Mm. it's an interplay between, well, how hot is it or what is the heat flux in which a firefighter is operating? And that heat flux, we might be talking about inside a burning building or we might be talking about in a parking lot Mm. that's heated on a hot day where there's also heat flux and thermal strain. It certainly depends upon the work that a firefighter is doing Mm. and the time that he or she is doing it. And your question is, well, what about time? Mm. But that intersects with the other two. You Mm. also ask the question of how long can they do it safely? And I think implicit in your question was, How long could they do it before? When you ask about heat flux, I think your question is really how long could they do it before there's a burn injury? A second level of concern is how long could you do it before there's excessive heat stress that either makes them have impaired cognitive function or an inability to make good decisions when you're under that much heat stress or makes you susceptible to a safety injury, like a slip, trip, or fall, or to heat stress, Mm -hmm. heat-related injuries, like heat stroke. Mm -hmm. 
These are all separate threats, and the length of time it would take to achieve any of them depends not just on the heat load or heat flux, not just on the work, not just on the time they're operating, but also on individual characteristics of a firefighter. How old are they? How fit are they? How hydrated are they? And how healthy are they? And so I think I'm reiterating much of what Gavin said in just a slightly different way, but it is complex. Mm. To answer your question, firefighters know some of these things. They know the hotter it is, the shorter they can work effectively. But they will also push themselves and sometimes push themselves beyond what is safe from a heat stress condition. So to answer your question as much as I want, and we have worked hard to try to give guidance, how long can a firefighter safely work? Mm. Research doesn't yet answer that question. And I know enough about human physiology and human variability Mm. to know we won't get a single answer, but maybe we come up with guidance. And I suspect it's going to be something mm. close to the 20 minutes. The 20, we have some experience in the field mm. where firefighters use one bottle of air. And when they have, they have to come out to change that air. And when they do, it provides an opportunity for the body to recover and to dissipate some heat because mm. they'll take off some of their protective equipment. This allows the body to begin cooling. Now, the guidance in the United States is that after 20 minutes of this type of physiological work, it would be best to give the human a chance to recover. But sometimes that has to be compared to or um, changed because the operational situation is so dire. There are people to be rescued. There's a search that must be done. We must control the fire at this stage or we risk it going to a much larger fire. And so we put Mm. humans back into that condition to do another 20 minutes or use another air bottle. But that's the practicality of trying to balance human safety versus the physical demands of firefighting that goes back and forth, and the fire service has earnestly tried to understand how to protect their own health and safety while also being true to their mission of protecting the community's safety, health, and property. And as an engineer, I now understand the question was ill-posed, maybe uh, measuring that in time. Maybe time is not a scale you would measure that. Maybe we need some firefighter work units, like uh, walking three floors is one work unit, carrying hose for 50 meters is one work unit, and just chilling out in the vehicle for two hours is one work unit as well. That's good work. That's a beautiful way to think of it. When we say it depends, that doesn't mean that it can't be quantified or it can't be estimated, Mm -hmm. or there there aren't things that are in place to understand this. So one of the pieces I was talking about was was having enough personnel on scene, Mm -hmm. crew side, Mm -hmm. turnout which is one of those critical pieces to allow our firefighters to cycle through, as Denise just mentioned, instead of having to go back in for that second cylinder of air, 
Now you can maybe move them to rehab and another group of firefighters can come in. And so there are standards that exist, uh, NFPA standards that say for a certain structure hazard or a type of fire, this is the amount of individuals that you should have on scene and how that can grow and develop based on the complexity of the scene that is available. And that's one of the ways that we can, like with with a a project that you're designing, understanding what level of complexity this could have. Say some of the work that you do on car parks. What is the access for those firefighters? Are they going to have to walk up multiple floors in order to get there? And we know Mm -hmm. whether it is stairs or walking up the, the car path itself, or are there elevators there? So that level of complexity, when you start thinking about this from your design, where in my worst case design fire Mm -hmm. am I going to have to get firefighters to? And if it takes them 20 minutes to walk there, think about what Denise just mentioned. They're still walking in their gear, most likely, at least in the United States, that would be typical to to get there to that point. Think about that as as a a work unit. Mm -hmm. How much effort will that require in terms of caring there? Or does an elevator allow them? Is there a fire service elevator that can help them to get to that location? Mm-hmm. Are there other things? Do they have to carry all their gear with them or is there a standpipe? Is there everything that's ready in, in those areas? So all of these things will depend. But as an engineer, you can start to think about those as well and understand that the work that the firefighters are doing, they are going to be preheated inside by walking up the stairs in their gear. Maybe they can help reduce that by unzipping their coat if, it, if it's not in smoke or they don't have some of that, that thermal risk. But it does depend. And we can think about some of those things from the environmental side, from a fire protection engineer side, from your design side on that, that part of the equation. That, you know, the challenges of the individual fitness for duty, the individual's preparation are, are still real. But that's something the fire service has also been communicating and discussing for a number of years to help make sure our firefighters understand the risks and the importance of fitness and hydration and and all of those things to address that side. So we're never going to be able to get a prescriptive code or standard that will will help us to say that, yep, this this amount of time, as you said, we transition to now you need more people. But it can help to guide firefighters and when you need to call a second alarm, when you need to bring more people in, maybe a third, fourth, fifth alarm. Mm-hmm. And some of that might be thought about instead of from the fire protection engineers just thinking about that environmental impact on the firefighters when they get there. What is the amount of time and effort that the firefighters put in place to actually get there? And how long will they operate there in terms of, of recommendations to the fire brigades for, for what they might consider as they're developing their SOPs, as they're pre-planning this structure, that's important for them to understand. And and oftentimes we do, right? In my fire department, we would go out and we would look at these structures and pre-plan and think about the access, not always thinking about the amount of time a firefighter would be in gear in a worst case scenario in a hot summer day, those sorts of things. I wonder if by improving PPE, in essence, making uh, firefighters be capable of handling more extreme conditions. If this makes a job safer or more dangerous, because suddenly you might want to tackle a bigger fire, you may want to get a little closer, you might want to work a little longer. And if the second threat comes from your own physiology, you may not intuitively feel that you're uh, entering the edge of the possibilities. Uh, I wonder if that's the case. Anyway, 
In terms of external conditions, like the fire conditions that the firefighters can battle, how big fire can actually firefighters approach and try to fight? Are there like any limits, let's say above, I don't know, 30 kilowatts per square meter, which would translate to a smoke of a temperature between six and 700 degrees uh, Celsius, more or less? Is this still something you can approach from, let's say, 10, 15 meter distance and do your work? Like, is there an understanding of how big fires we can fight? Because I, I've seen some big fires in my life and I'm not sure any amount of PPE would let me get close to them as, as close as, uh, as I could effectively fight them. Let me begin with that and then give it to Gavin, who will have a more complete answer. But, but the question depends on several mm. things. I, I understood you to be asking how much is the PPE going to protect yeah. the firefighter? Mm. And that is a question of how long, mm. right? You, it can be a very, very big fire and you can get a very brief exposure. Mm -hmm. But the other piece that is so important in that discussion to understand safety is not all components of the PPE ensemble are the same. Mm -hmm. And so we have come to understand that one of the most vulnerable pieces of the protection that firefighters wear is the face piece. So you may be protected from a thermal injury longer than that face piece will maintain its integrity. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's a catastrophic failure if a firefighter loses a face piece. So there's some real complexity in that question as well. And I'm sure Gavin has some more he would speak to there. Yeah. You know, another great question. And, you know, as with everything else, I hate to look, leave the answer with it. It depends. But this right now is an area where there's a lot of research that's going on. And, and now this is not just recent research. Mm -hmm. um, there have been these I think thermal classification systems or schemes is probably the best way to include it. You know, they're, they're kind of maps, similar to what you just described, where you might have, you know, heat transfer on, on the horizontal axis and the environmental temperature on the vertical axis. And if it's within this region, it's often shown in green and, mm. and it's okay. Uh, and it starts moving to yellow and orange and to red as you get into the more emergency or extreme classifications, depending on, on how, you, how you view them. And, and these have been around for quite some time. Uh, one that we often use uh, was developed by Harvey Utech. It was presented at the Fire Department Instructors Conference in the 1970s. I think it was 1973. Mm -hmm. He was working for National Bureau of Standards. And, and someone who uh, we have thought about this a lot based on working with Dan Madrakowski, who I know has been on, on your show and, and is you know, the, an expert on the thermal environment from the external uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. So the perfect show would be Denise and Dan <laughs> together. So think about yeah. that. <laughs> but we know that those classifications provide us a little bit of understanding about the risk, mm -hmm. right? But they're also not perfect. And we often focus on air temperature, mm -hmm. at least some of the early studies, because it's easy to measure. It's much easier to measure mm -hmm. air temperature with a thermocouple than uh, you know a heat flux gauge, yep. especially if you want to get something where you have accuracy, where you have to have water cooled or other sorts of infrastructure necessary. It's, it's hard to carry mm -hmm. a heat flux gauge. 
And so a, a study that we did uh, back when Dan was at, at NIST and uh, Joe Willie, who is now a research engineer with us at UL, he was an undergrad student at uh, University of Illinois. And he developed a helmet that would carry a heat flux gauge as well as a temperature probe. And so we went into various different training environments to try to compare what were firefighters being exposed to in those environments compared to these classifications. Mm -hmm. And it was quite interesting. And Dan did a a great summary on this. Uh, there's There's a report you can find online from, I think it was 2017, where he summarized all of this with all these classifications as well. And we saw that, yeah, most firefighters tend to work kind of in that routine or that ordinary side, but you can spend some time in the emergency classifications. One that was particularly interesting for us was we were in a a training scenario where the air temperature never got above around 60 degrees Celsius, but there was a lot of radiant heat that was coming at us. And Joe was, and I, both firefighters at the time were were sitting in there in our, our gear. He had his helmet on. And again, the temperatures never got above 60, but the heat flux was 10 to 15 and up to to 20 for some small Mm -hmm. periods of time, mostly in that 10 to 15 range. But they were sustained long enough that his face piece started to degrade, like it just Mm -hmm. started bubbling. We saw a little bit and then we got back out. But the air temperature would have been considered routine, would have been considered Mm -hmm. a low risk area. The heat flux was up in the ordinary, but... The heat flux, the face piece absorbed all of that energy, even though the air temperature around it was very low. So it's hard to kind of balance the two of those at the same time. And it's hard to measure the heat flux in that environment. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, because it took us like 100 years to realize that when doing fire tests in furnaces, that when you have a Mm -hmm. gas phase thermocouple, you're measuring pretty much the gas temperature and convective heat transfer. But when you right. have a surface, which we now we use and call plate thermometers, you suddenly measure all modes of heat transfer on that element. And yeah, if you're getting burned, it's, it's not a huge relief to know that it's not from convective heat transfer. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the, the transfer mechanism is. Yeah, exactly. Right? One of the other challenges with some of those classifications is it if I plop, if I'm at outside of the structure and I go into say the emergency conditions where it says you should be in there for you know between 50 to 30 seconds that also what does it take for you to get there you're most likely by the time you crawl into those conditions you're not just going immediately from cool to that emergency condition you're working your way through those higher temperature levels those ordinary levels those hazardous or extreme conditions before you get to that that peak so we need to understand also it's the time that the gear is absorbing some of this energy as well, because that's how the gear is protecting the firefighter. That personal protective equipment absorbs a lot of that energy. And while some of it transfers into the firefighter and, redu- and increases that risk, it also retains a whole lot of that energy and increases its temperature. So you're preheated. You might be preheated working in those lower environments for maybe 20 minutes. Maybe you, maybe it is a routine yeah. environment, but that has got now increased its temperature. And now you have less time to work in that extreme or that emergency condition. So that's one of the limitations of, of kind of those classifications. Yeah, we, this is where we recommend that you don't spend more time in here versus that. But there's also... 
the reality is that you're going to be going back and forth between those conditions because fire is such a dynamic event. Mm. And also, one thing that we found is you, you can protect yourself. Just because the air temperature, just because there's a lot of radiant heat at this location where you're working, if you duck behind a door, you're using shielding to protect yourself from that radiant energy, right? So you can do some things. You can get yourself lower in the environment, right? So the firefighters intuitively understand there's ways of using time, distance, and shielding to protect themselves from radiation, right? Whether it's thermal radiation or, or any other concern of radiation we have. So I think those classifications provide us a really useful idea or concept of, of what we're facing, mm. that, that this is an elevated risk once we get to this category. But just putting a, a cutoff and saying at 9.9 kilowatts per meter squared, we're, we're in class three versus 10.1, we're in class four, that limits our understanding of some of the complexity, though it is important to help you know, firefighters to understand you are spending some time in some very high risk thermal environments once you go to that place. Like how you've placed this uh, preheating and I can draw analogy to method we used to design open plan offices, uh, the traveling fire methodology, where we assume that the parts of your building are preheated by a fire that's burning far, far away. And eventually fire reaches mm -hmm. that point. And it's not ambient temperature structure that is exposed to fire, but it's something that has been preheated and maybe lost a lot of its uh, resistance to fire, if I, if I may, at that point. And then it, it goes into collapse because you've uh, exposed to the max something that was already uh, severely uh, threatened by, by the fire already. So here is it's a similar analogy. You have a firefighter who's been working, so he's been building this physiological stresses in, in their PPE, and then they get exposed to extreme. And I also assume you don't want to go to the max. You don't want to go to 99% of capacity, okay, run away, because fire may always change. So you always want to be prepared for this. Uh, you always want to have at least this one shot to run away when, when it, it changes. You know, the more I think about it, the more I talk with firefighters and researchers from these fields of fire science, the more I feel this knowledge needs to get into heads of engineers who are designing, especially designing large and complex building structures. Because we focus so much on the fire exposure, the fire conditions, what can the compartment be, how what the temperatures in the corridor will be. We forget that to reach that corridor, there's 40 floors to, to climb up, or you have to go four, four levels down and get like 300 meters across your car park which essentially means that the firefighter will be already exhausted by the time they reach uh, the fire. So, so that is not something you, you learn in, in fire safety engineering, and I think you should when it comes to high-complexity buildings. Denise, uh, as a physiologist, I wanted to ask you one more question. Um, this heat stresses combined from outside, from inside, is this uh, something that's just acute, like the, the threat is to your body the moment you are exposed or is it something accumulating over time and leading to some long lasting health issues with the firefighters? Yeah, it, it's a fantastic question. For the most part, the challenges of heat stress, we're, we're looking primarily at an acute problem, an acute problem that happens over time. So with firefighting, 
it's unlike most of the time when we exercise. Mm-hmm. We have increased workload and we dissipate heat. We sweat, we evaporate the heat, and body temperature will go up some, but slowly because we're increasing dissipation mm-hmm. along with increasing heat load. In firefighting, it's a condition of uncompensable heat stress because you're building up the heat load because of metabolic work, but you cannot effectively dissipate the heat. Mm -hmm. And this will lead to an acute heat illness if it continues too long. Mm -hmm. Now, if we take a firefighter out and provide on-scene rehabilitation or proper cooling, the firefighter will return to normal temperature It probably takes much longer than an individual realizes. Probably they need an hour to recover. Mm. They will feel better in minutes, but the body temperature will not return to normal quickly. Mm. But as long as a firefighter is allowed to recover to normal temperature, we would not expect a cumulative health problem from repeated elevations in temperature. Now that changes If the temperature gets to a critical point where there's actually heat stroke or heat illness or related muscle damage called rhabdomyolysis. In this case, having had heat illness increases your susceptibility to have it again, which is particularly dangerous for firefighters who are routinely exposed to high temperatures. So I would say cumulative bouts of heat stress within tolerable limits is probably not a concern. Exceeding limits does pose a health risk for firefighters, but this is a different scenario than exposure to carcinogens Mm -hmm. and potential carcinogens, which is undoubtedly a cumulative Cumulative. health problem for firefighters. So it's more like a matter of having enough time to cool down, enough risk to go get back to your initial stage. And are we measuring that? Like that, that these heat stresses are, do you know of any routine applications of like personal measurement systems that would monitor uh, human body temperature during the scene? So the, for example, commander can know, okay, this, this guy is, is, uh, is really high. I should pull him out because uh, he, he might go into this uh, region where it's critical. Are we doing that now? Or Yeah, I like the way you think. I, I like it a lot. There has been um, many research projects and some development projects trying to find ways to measure temperature in real time. But there's a huge problem with applicability in the fire service. Mm-hmm. So if you were, let me give you an example. If you were to think about a marathon, mm-hmm. We know that individuals' temperatures are going to go up during a marathon, but when would you stop a runner during a marathon? If a runner was um, a tenth of a kilometer from the finish line and you saw that the body temperature was 39 degrees, would you stop the runner? Or 39.1 or 39.6? It varies for each individual. There's a place where risk increases. But that runner is more than willing to take that risk to get over the finish line and then go into a cooling tent. And for sure, firefighters are more motivated than that runner when they believe the work they're doing is essential to protecting their community. So we have a technical problem of measuring the temperature. It's not easy to do 
wall of firefighters uh, deployed. And then you have the realistic concern, like when is your concern about increased risk mean that we should pull a firefighter from doing what he or she is intended to do? So I think there's some promise of being able to do that, but we're not there. We're not there right now. You're right. If you watch a movie and there's a hero and they have like the last, uh, last percent of oxygen that that's when the best part of the movie starts so <laughs> it's not when they back off for the next bottle you're you're absolutely right about that but um i i'm a huge fan of technology maybe one day we'll come up with with something that uh helps people do their job safer because i, w- I agree there's a huge deficit of heroes we <laughs> should not overstress the ones we have and you know i would also point out that, that that's not a simple technology question either in, in terms of getting accurate measurements mm-hmm. that are relatable you know going back to our earlier discussion it's easy to measure air temperature but if the local heat flux is actually more important you might be making a decision based on the data that you have that may not be the most valuable mm-hmm. we can measure heart rate relatively easily but there's challenges in relating that to the core temperature. Uh, there's work being done there, but there's other ways of measuring core temperature, but a lot harder to, to measure. So the technological piece of this is not simple by any stretch of the imagination, and people have been working on it for quite some time. I think, and Denise is involved in some of those, many of those projects, I think it's getting better, but we still got a little ways to go on that piece as well. This is a place where the fire service has been really looking to our friends in the military Mm. because military researchers and the military are both concerned with heat stress as well. Mm. In that case, it's I would argue it's a little simpler because there's not the same high heat loads and the PPE that they're wearing is usually less encapsulating. But you can understand quickly there are many analogies and reasons that both groups are concerned about heat stress. But being able to instrument a firefighter with a way to validly assess temperature is still difficult operationally, for sure. Okay, uh, guys, thank you so much. This was supposed to be a nice and easy episode when I, where I will ask you, like, what, te- what temperature is okay? You will give me the value with, like, plus minus 5% accuracy. Uh, we're we're going to talk some humidity and, and be done with it. And, and you've thrown at me world of complexity, but uh, I'm, I'm very happy and fortunate to participate in discussions like that because these things I was not taught at school and I maybe should have been. And uh, if I have students, I, I may, will make sure that at least part of the course touches this because if you talk fire engineering, that's a part of fire engineering. And there's definitely a lot of firefighters also listening uh, to this podcast, broadening their horizons. So I, I really hope uh, this episode was a source of information and real practical knowledge to them. And I, I, thong- I think it was inspiring to, to, to everyone. I mean, we're battling the same enemy. Uh, let's battle it smarter and, and, and learn more. So uh, Denise, Gavin, uh, thank you so much for, for this uh, interesting episode. I'll try to link some of the works mentioned in the show notes. So I'll try to drive the audience to sources of credible knowledge where they could um, expand their, their knowledge in this field. And yeah, once again, thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity and thanks for all the great work you do. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. Cheers. And that's it. Wow. 
It's even hard to summarize it further than what I did in the end of the interview itself. The physiological stresses added into the external thermal stresses that firefighters face, I've never considered that. And now, like, it's not that I'm going to use my calculations to include for that, but suddenly when I put my firefighter axis a few meters further than usually, or when I design a standby or where where I place an elevator, or where I try to design a high-risk building that is very tall or deep, that this image of firefighter stresses and uh, this knowledge on what the firefighter has to go through before they even start extinguishing, this is something that's going to stay with me and I, th- I think I'll, I'll consider that in my design. I, I have to consider that in my design now as I know that. I hope for many of you it was as eye-opening as for me. And yeah, be a good friend. Share, share this episode with your colleagues. I mean, it's not an easy episode. It's not a fun episode. But uh, I think it's an important one as it contains a piece of puzzle that many of us probably does not know. Not sure about what your education has taught you, what what did you go through as your fire safety engineering programs or what have you learned through the years of experience. But if you have not dealt with the fire on your own, if you have not ever been in PPE fighting fires, I have never been. I have not experienced this. I had no idea. And I'm very humble to say that and very thankful to Denise and Gavin to teach me that because I would have not known and it's it's important it's, it's I feel kind of stupid you know it's these things are super important and I have never known so yeah very thankful uh, for learning this in this episode and I hope that you also got your lesson and enjoyed the time spent with me Denise and Gavin anyway that's it for the, today's episode thank you very much for listening looking forward to next Wednesday and another good episode i hope i i have some good interviews coming so let's stay in touch and see you here next wednesday bye this was the fire science show thank you for listening and see you soon